Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available, sign up for newsletter updates, and to register. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in the industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all the European Conference for Object-Oriented Programming as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. You can check out 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Renar. Renar, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Renar. I am uh, one of the authors of a book called Functional Programming in Scala. I work at a company called Verizon, which you may have heard of, and we're doing purely functional programming there to sort of bring television into the 21st century. How did you get started into functional programming? What was that path like that first exposed you to your first hint of functional programming? So my first hint of functional programming was discovering Haskell. Before I got functional programming, I was doing Java, sort of like enterprise Java at a startup in Austin, Texas. And you know, we had a lot of Java code and it was all broken in some way because, you know, it it was something that had been developed under tight deadlines and, you know, we had been like expanding it for a while and and it was very brittle and changing it, you know, caused it to have bugs. And then when we fixed bugs, we would introduce new bugs. And we started looking into what would be a way to sort of have a principled approach to programming so that we don't like, introduce bugs and, and to have a way of verifying statically that our code is correct. And, you know, and came across Haskell in that context. So how did you come across Haskell? That's, was that something you found on your own or did other people that you knew had have worked with it and recommended it to you? What was that little thing that sparked the Haskell and kind of like, why was it Haskell? Was it just serendipity or was there something specific about Haskell that attracted you? I think it must have just been serendipity. I think Haskell was kind of seeing a resurgence at the time. This was around maybe 2005, something like that. And I remember maybe a little bit later seeing Xmonad and that was written in Haskell. It was like a Linux window manager written in Haskell. Uh, yeah, so it, it was it was really just like doing research on the web and seeing like what are people doing for like, for verifying code and, and like making sure that code is correct. And like reading people's blogs, I don't even remember whose blogs. Uh, I, I remember like Lambda the Ultimate was like a good source at the time for like functional geekery. 
And basically, you know, figuring out that, yeah, if you model everything as functions from inputs to outputs, you can't really like go off the rails. I mean, you can still make something that has a poor design, but you can't like shoot yourself in the foot in the same way that you do with, you know, like shared mutable state and things like that, that we were doing in, in Java. What was that learning curve for Haskell like? Because I know some people have sat there and they're like, oh, okay, this seems inherent in my background with some of the things I've learned outside of I've been bitten by immutability and I, now I get, aha, this is a language that has immutability and I get it versus some of these things that are types where if you had, didn't have the exposure to types, you still try and understand the types and the math behind the types. It's tricky. So was there anything that clicked immediately for you? And then what was the things that you kind of stumbled across when you were first getting into Haskell and learning Haskell? Well, I think that it is definitely difficult because like, I have no... I had no formal mathematical training and I had no prior exposure to like functional programming or, any, or anything like that. So I, I'm coming from a background of doing like Pascal and C and Java and like assembly language programming. So, you know, I was always very much sort of like a systems guy. And when I come across Haskell, you know, it's, it's really sort of a paradigm shift and it changes the way that you think about programs. So you think about programs as functions from inputs to outputs. I actually found that a really natural way to think because it sort of reduces the number of things that you have to hold in your head. You know, it's just like, okay, well, what is the input to this function and what is my expected output? And I don't have to model like what is the world state. But yeah, one of the more difficult things was coming to terms with, with like how to model things that are stateful and came across things like state monads and, and stuff like that. And also, yeah, that, that was quite difficult to, to get into. But again, found it quite natural to think about instead of, you know, how am I mutating the, the world? Think about what is my input? I thought in terms of databases, like I go and I insert a record in this database. Like, what does that mean functionally? Like, oh, well, it means that I take the, I have a function and I take the database as an input to that function. And the function returns the modified database, right? And then, oh, I might want to pass that on to another function, et cetera. And now my whole program is just like a chain of functions that are passing the database along. And that turned out to be like how the state monad worked. How long has it been since you started playing with Haskell and started learning it? Has it been a number of years or was that something relatively recent? Because I know you're doing Scala or at least involved with the Scala community now. So how long was that Haskell journey? And then how long ago was the Scala transition from there? The Scala transition came pretty quickly after because, so this was about 10 years ago, maybe, that I started the, the Scala journey and then, and then getting into Haskell maybe a couple of years before. So yeah, I guess 2003 to 2005 is when I started sort of having this functional awakening, you know. And then I think around 2006 is when, uh, when I really started getting into Scala. I was... And I was talking to some Java people online about Haskell. They said two things to me. One, have you ever looked at Scala? And two, do you know somebody named Tony Morris? And I said no to both of those things. And so I found this gentleman named Tony Morris, and he was involved in this language called Scala. And it turned out that it was basically like a, a functional programming language. Or it was a, a programming language in which you could do all of these things that you were doing in Haskell in pretty much the same way or a much much easier way than than we were doing in java 
So I guess sort of a preamble to that is that we were actually doing purely functional programming in Java at my company prior to figuring out that Scala was a thing. And we were involved in a library that was called Functional Java. And actually, yeah, some, some of the people that were involved in Functional Java, including Tony Morris, were then involved in Scala. And that's how I, how I came across those guys. But yeah, like doing purely functional programming in the Java language in 2006 was hard, but totally worth it. So what did that entail when you were doing the purely functional in Java besides just value objects? Was that creating a bunch of command objects and passing those around as your lambdas? Or was there some other stuff around? Or was this even some IL stuff where you had to add a special library that could do some of this stuff for you in the way that I want to say Groovy gets you a little bit? Or is right, it Guava? Yeah. It's either Groovy or Guava. I can never remember. I never really looked into those things. I guess I kind of skipped over Groovy and, and those things because Scala was there. But functional Java is, is just a library for for Java. And so we'd model lambdas as we had an interface called function. I mean, it's very much similar to the way that Java 8 libraries are now. There's an interface called function. It has a single method called apply. I think we called that interface f instead of function because it was really long to type. So, you know, it's an interface that takes two type arguments, the input type and the output type, and it has a single method called apply that takes the input and turns it into the output. And that's your functional interface. And it's the same way in Scala. Like, uh, the lambdas in Scala are represented by an interface called function one that is modeled very much the same way. Okay. And I think I've done something like that with .NET before they came out with the lambdas, just looking after some of the stuff in Java as well. And that had been established. So I might've actually kind of taken that one specifically as inspiration without realizing that that was what it was. So you make the transition into Scala from this. Yeah. It's hard to think that Scala is 10 plus years old now because it's been picking up steam and getting even more popular within the past few years that to forget that it's been around that long. What were the early days of making that transition to Scala looking like? Was that something that was pretty readily adopted since you were using purely functional or what was the adoption early on in that time? So in the company where I was, there was no Scala adoption at all. We could not use Scala. So we were able to use functional Java library. And we were, oh, actually, we were using Scala for testing. We were using Scala check to do unit testing or to do automated specification-based tests. And uh, wait, what was your question again? It was more about that adoption in your company of if it's early days of Scala, when you're starting to dig into it and grasp it and join the community, how you found that transition of being able to take advantage of it. So it sounded like Scala check for tests, but that was about it? That was about it. But... I was super interested in Scala at the time, and I started to contribute to this library called Scala Z, which was being developed at a company in Australia that was called Working Mouse. So this was a library for doing you know, purely functional Scala. So the background story for that is that the standard Scala library didn't at the time, and still doesn't to a large degree, like help you very much with like purely functional stuff. I mean, there are like immutable data structures and things like that, but there aren't, there aren't like type classes like monad and functor and, and like stuff that, that you're used to seeing coming from Haskell. And so this library, Scala Z, 
was sort of like a third-party expansion of the standard library, providing all of these purely functional constructs that, that make it easier to use Scala as a purely functional language. And, and so I started contributing to this library, and I started writing you know, type classes. I think I wrote the co-monad type class and like tree and the IO monad and, and other stuff like that in there. And I was blogging about it and got sort of like, I guess I got a little bit of a following in that regard. And there was a small community like of Scala Z developers online. And one of them was Paul Giusano, who was my co-author on the book. And he contacted me and asked me if I wanted to move to Boston and work with him doing purely functional programming for a financial company. And so I said, yeah. And, you know, I sold my house and moved to Boston to do purely functional programming in Scala. So, A, that answers the first question that I have across a number of guests is it's officially pronounced Scala Z then instead of just Scala Z because I've heard it multiple times. But Well, it's, it's kind of a terrible name if you ask me, but it's been there for a while and so it's kind of stuck. But, I mean, it, it is just Scala followed by the letter Z. And I say Z because I was brought up to say Z. And, you know, it's from Australia and so they say Z there as well. So. Yeah. Us foreigners say Z, but y'all can say Z. And then with that, you have that Scala Z style, the very pure functional, the very Haskell-inspired type system that you're trying to bring into Scala. And I've heard about the three camps in Scala, where there's the, this is just a better Java. There's the, this is kind of a Ruby style to it. I guess that comes from the early days of Twitter when they were doing Ruby and first moving over to Scala, where it's kind of got more of a Ruby style. And then there's the Scala Z inspiration style, which is we want types, we want a bunch of abstract data types and everything that you get from Haskell. And we want to try and do as pure, as stateless as possible and do this. Have you noticed that transition or is that just something that's not really in the community, but from someone who's on the inside, and what does that look like from someone who's actually in the Scala community? Well, I, I think that it was certainly true in the beginning. In the beginning, there were probably these three, you know, there were these three camps. It's like, oh, well, the first camp is Scala is a better Java. The second camp is Scala is a typed alternative to Ruby and a fast alternative to Ruby. And then the third camp is, well, Scala is a worse Haskell, right? So... I think in the beginning that was probably true, but again, Scala has been around for like more than a decade now, and I think it is starting to develop its own sort of style, and and people are you know getting into Scala sort of for its own sake now. The main thing that people get from Scala is that they're able to do modern functional programming on the JVM. I think that's sort of the the main thing that people get. And the reason I ask is because of the different styles when someone comes into Scala is that expected that they're going to be seeing a lot of the Scala Z use or what kind of style. Because I know just originally it kind of blurred the lines. So it was half OO, half functional and kind of made that easy transition, which I guess is the it's a better Java. And so I didn't know part of that is what is the state of Scala looking like now with people who come in and are seeking out Scala because it's Scala. From what you've seen, are they looking for the types that you get and the abstractions from Scala Z, or is it somewhere in between? 
I don't know. It's probably somewhere in between. I mean, different people have different goals, right? A lot of the people that I work with come to Scala to be able to do, you know, better functional programming on on the JVN. But uh, but I guess you're you're right that there are lots of people coming to Scala for sort of superior object oriented constructs. And uh, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, I, I guess people are using Scala for for that kind of thing. But I guess I kind of feel like that's sort of a carryover from a previous time. It's like it's a carryover like from the 20th century of of programming, you know. Well, and when you're trying to get it, I guess adoption into a larger enterprise, it's hard to just completely overhaul the way someone thinks if that language itself still allows for some of that thinking. Yeah, maybe. I mean, for me, I, mean, I can only speak from from my own experience, but I think that so I was heavily into object-oriented programming when that was fashionable, like in the 90s. And like that was really like the only way that you learned how to code. Like if you went to and we went to school to learn to program, it was like, you know, object Pascal or it was like C++ or Java, you know, it was and everything was like very object-oriented and people and you know, we would have like you know the Gang of Four book and this like design patterns and and yeah, so everyone's like really heavily invested in object-oriented programming. But I think at least in my experience, it doesn't lead to code bases that that just turn into kind of big balls of mud because the like the number of connections tend to sort of grow and and like the the functional decomposition that you see. And like functional code bases doesn't happen as readily or to the extent that it happens, then, you know, you like are doing functional programming. You know what I mean? Like shared mutable state is like, you know, it, it's, it's terrible. It, it infects code bases the world over. And not to say that like object oriented programming and shared mutable state necessarily go together, but they often do. That makes sense. And part of the reason I'm asking these questions from your perspective is, A, you've seen the community change and transition. And B, you're also, at least through some experience, because you're going and giving conference talks, and you wrote a book on functional programming in Scala of the same name. But it's that transition of bringing people through and seeing how are these people getting introduced and some of those practices. Because if you wrote a book on it, there's at least some kind of guideline that you're getting people ramped up. So what does that look like from your perspective of pulling the people in and using Scala to pull these people in who might not have had the functional programming background when they're coming in and now picking up Scala if they're thinking it's a better Java? What is the approach of introducing these functional concepts that you found has worked to lead people to being more pure? Well, so the goal is not to be pure, right? The goal is to write maintainable code. The end goal is my personal happiness as a programmer, right? And like, you know, when I sit down at my code base and I'm like trying to, to modify it, the less sort of gunk and interconnections there are between things, the easier it is going to be for me to like move things around and, and do stuff, right? So I just want to say that the goal is not some kind of purity, right? It's really, you know, it's a practical matter of like being able to continue to work on your code. And I guess I was getting at just, it doesn't have to be necessarily completely pure, but just more pure where you're changing something and then you don't have that ripple effect where you now break all your tests because of some weird dependency that you've managed to mock out and stub or do something. And now 
the small supposed refactoring has now just affected everything because that state is just pervasive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like, what does that transition look like? Well, I mean, for me, it's small increments. It's starting out with some system that is either like on the peripheries or something that is sort of somewhere like in the in the core of your of your application. For me, it started with just handling errors, something simple. So instead of like throwing exceptions and like allowing methods to like throw exceptions out and basically like crash your program, use something like either or option or, you know, maybe to return errors as a value. And then, you know, you can, you know, you, you model the, the error like in the return type of your function. And then you can work with the error and maybe recover from it in a reasonable way. It's localized, right, to the, you know, you make a call to a function that might fail, and you have to figure out what to do with the error. Like, you either pass it on, or you handle it right there. But either way, like, a method can't just, like, throw an exception out and crash your program, right? And that makes sense, because I was actually working with a coworker today. We were doing some Objective-C stuff just in the background, but was really talking about it'd be nice to have an either here because yeah. we can either error we, something can go wrong or something can go right and we get a value back like if we wanted to look something up by a key in the dictionary and some native storage kind of stuff it was that there's any number of things that could be wrong from a consumer because it's cordova and we have to interrupt with javascript so who knows what we're doing as far as purity because you're crossing those boundaries and it's like it'd be nice to have an either here where and so it's kind of like walking through him and explaining the either in the way that you just mentioned, where it's like, well, what do we have to do now? Well, we have to either raise an exception and catch it in the other place, but that potentially breaks anybody else who's going to want to call it from this other way of doing this. So I can see where that makes sense. Yeah. The second thing that we managed to sort of get in was kind of like an IO monad or like a, like a database state monad where like the, the database state is sort of being passed along as sort of like, instead of, be, instead of, sort of mutating the, the global database and passing the database state along. And I don't know if you've got Scala at all. This, there's an awesome Scala library called Doobie, which is like purely functional access to SQL databases. And it's very similar to the kinds of things that we were doing like in the early days at, at this company that I was working at. We made this data type called DB, and, you know, whenever we wanted to, like, call the database, we had a different type. If we wanted to get a string from the database, it wouldn't be a string with some side effects. It would be a DB string. And then you could take that DB string and you could, like, run it. And when you run that, that actually goes and talks to the database and gets a string and all that stuff. But the main thing is that during the normal execution of your code, you're not, like, mixing strings that you have in memory and like strings that require you to like connect to a database and require the database to be up and require your network to be stable and things like that right that was pretty easy to introduce because you know, because people are, are were well i found that people were looking for that kind of separation of concerns that makes sense and it seems like it'd make it easier to sell because it makes it easier to test as well when you're like look i don't actually modify the db here i just return something that represents something that will modify the database and so 
we don't have to now stub out all this stuff and mock out all this stuff just to be able to prove we could get a value from a database. That's actually a really good point because like what people are used to doing is that they have some kind of like repo class, right? Like, oh, you have some repo abstract class and then you have two subclasses of them and one of them like talks to the real database and the other one talks to like a mock database, right? But in like a purely functional setting, it's like, well, you know that what you need here is like a string from the database. So you can just like generate a string based on the fact that you know that this is supposed to be like a DB string. So we can just pretend that we have a database and just like generate a string as if as if it's just a function that requires a string. And it seems easy to be able to test the result because I can now just check this thing without actually having to run it. Or it seems like it's easy to fake it out because I can just pass in another function that's a DB string that represents the applying and of the function to get it out and get the result. And it just returns a specific result. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. You know, you can always take like a string and wrap it in a DB, you know, that just like does not actually connect to the database, right? So those seem like really good tips to introduce. And you mentioned using some of the things like Scala check in the early days to introduce some Scala and get stuff in. What other tricks have you found that have helped the build the acceptance of functional programming, whether it's in Scala or anything else, if you're trying to just expose the ideas to some of these people? Well, I don't know. We go through a number of things in the book. So we start out with just purely functional data types like lists. So one of the first things that, that people come across, I think, is the is the idea that instead of having like in Java, you have like an array list or something, which is like a mutable structure. And instead of having like one object that you like proceed to mutate and every everything like shares this mutable object, you have an immutable structure where to modify it means to just create a new structure, right? That like shares some of the structure of the old one. You know, like with a list, like, you know, if you add an element to the front of a list, then that is just the old list with an element on the front of it. Like it, it's it's not like you've taken the old list and like changed it in any fundamental way. In the same way that, you know, if you take three and two and you add them to get five, you haven't like modified the number three. The number three still exists and you can use it, right? You haven't like added two to it. It's the same as the string buffer if you're familiar with Java concept, right? String buffer. So it's, it's String buffer is mutable, right? Is it? Yeah. So yes. So this is the difference between string and string buffer. I was getting confused because I've done some .NET stuff, which actually does. Oh, it's the opposite. Uh, well, or it just holds on to the original strings and then builds something up as a and returns the value, so it doesn't. So you don't actually change the strings because the strings are immutable or something. Oh, okay. All right. I see. I, I might. I might be wrapping myself and using a bad analogy there, which is no, probably I... more likely. No, I think that makes makes a lot of sense because uh, I think that maybe what they do is like cording, where you if you want to like concatenate two strings, you don't actually like create a new string with the concatenation. You just like put them together next to each other in a in a new structure. But what I'm talking about is sort of like the difference between like string buffer, where you know it's like a memory buffer, it's like an array, and to like add a character at the end you have to like mutate the array. Like you change the size of the array and you like write to the last address of the array 
and the original string is now destroyed, right? So that's like character arrays in Java. But with immutable strings in Java, like if you add a character, what you get is now a new string. And this is the old string still exists. And so the idea with immutable data structures is to do this with everything. So do this with lists and do it with trees. And, and yeah, so every kind of data structure that you might want to use, use an immutable data structure that you don't actually modify in place. So that's like the first leap, right? At least that we do in the book. And the second leap that we do is to how to handle errors using option or maybe or either. So option is the Scala version of maybe in Haskell. And then we go to state. So working with state in a purely functional way. So if you're no longer modifying data structures in place, then how do you talk about things changing, right? Well, you pass them from one function to another, right? So, so one function will receive the original list, right? And it will return a modified list. And then you'll pass that modified list to the next function, and then that's the next modification, et cetera. And that's how you do state purely functionally. And then I think that what you need to do is just like go and try this out. Like it's super important, I think, to like actually apply this stuff in practice in, in your real work, you know, because you can like read about state monads until you're blue in the face. But until you go and, and like make this part of your daily work and like try to do things with immutable data structures and, and things like that, it's not really going to stick. It's always going to be something that is sort of separate from your work. You know what I mean? That makes sense. And those are good things that I was looking for about those steps of how you start to introduce it. Because I know in the basic world, it's like here, here's just, you're in an object-oriented language still, introduce a value object because that's the immutability and start to introduce some of those even if you don't make that pass. And so that sounds like a, a sensible progression that you take people through. Have you found feedback from any of those? Because the reason I ask is today I also from a coworker who's into Scala and is very interested in it and is a little bit of the community. He mentioned you also have now another handbook that goes along with the functional programming Scala book. So what I'm assuming that takes some of the lessons in and kind of just helps redistill and go along with it. So what does the handbook consist of? Oh, the companion booklet. So the companion booklet is nothing other than just a printout of the material that is freely available online that goes with the book. So it's just like all the code and the answers and the hints for the exercises and like chapter notes and things like that. Like all that stuff is available on GitHub and there are links to it in the book. But what I've done is I put all of that stuff in a PDF and I uploaded it to Amazon. And now you can go to Amazon and you can ask Amazon to print you a copy and pay them like 15 bucks or something. So that's what the companion booklet is. Okay. Yeah. They just mentioned you had a companion booklet. So I wasn't sure if it was more of a lessons distilled after writing it kind of a little bit, not quite addendum, but just reinforcement of some of those lessons that. No, it's, it's literally just the online materials printed out for people who can't like for people who want to like work on the train or like have like a physical copy, you know. like because sometimes you just like don't have access to GitHub, right? Yeah, and that makes sense. That's I, that's not what I was picturing, but I can see where that is very very valuable as well. Because as you said, 
not always connected and being able to recognize that and have that handy if I'm studying somewhere and busy yeah. sounds like a great resource as well. well that's, you know, that was sort of a, a major piece of feedback that we got on the book was that, you know, it's difficult to use if you're not like doing the exercises and it's difficult to do the exercises like if you don't have access to the internet. And so what I decided to do was just to take all that stuff and like put it in a PDF and put it somewhere where people could print it out. And that was easy to do because the publisher actually released all of that code and all of those exercises under an open source license. So all of that material is open source and, you know, you can print it out and sell it and do whatever you want with it. And does any of that get updated as the GitHub repos get updated? Is there just, you go in and check in every quarter or whatever to just put in the updated repos for any patches or anything that have gone or is it? So the GitHub repo has like the latest code and like fixes that people have submitted errata and things like that. And I'll go in, yeah, I guess like once a quarter or something and I'll like print out another PDF for the companion booklet. But really the GitHub repo is like the source of truth for that stuff. But to specify that all of that stuff is totally useless if you don't have the book, right? That makes sense. I can see where a companion book doesn't make sense if you don't actually have the book it's a companion to. Right. So I know we're kind of close to your time for what you have today, but is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure people know that you want to make sure you get a message out there for anybody listening? I don't know. Let me think about that for a second. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? I'd be happy to talk a little bit and give a high-level overview of some of your thoughts about your Constraints Liberate talk if we got some time, but I wanted to make sure that if there's anything else that we hadn't talked about that you think we need to make mention to and we didn't touch on a tangent before we get to the end of time, I wanted to make sure I gave you some time for that as well. So I guess let's just kind of give a rundown of why you think the constraints liberate in the cons- in for anybody who hasn't seen your talk and maybe entice them. And- yeah, so, so that talk kind of came together out of kind of a deep dive I did into adjunctions in, in category theory. And so, you know, like I said, I have no formal mathematical training. And so I have to just like make these deep dives where I take some concept like that and I just like try to figure it out. And then I'll, you know, blog about it. And then I'll maybe, you know, do a talk about it or something. And this this particular talk about constraints, liberate and liberties constraint came out of that. Did you see that talk? Yeah, I was just watching it because someone, Brian Lonsdorf on the last episode mentioned it. So I went and re- and so I went and watched it before we talked about this. And I thought it was very interesting to that. You were talking about as you start to move up some of the higher abstractions, you actually lose power in one area while you gain it in another, in that balance. Yeah. So what turns out to be the case is that we tend to reach for, you know, short-sighted creatures that we are, right? We tend to reach for the most powerful tools that are at our disposal because we might want to do something, right? We, we might want to use them in some way. But it turns out that in languages and in, and in programming and in, in mathematics, the more kinds of things that you could model using your language or your tools or your theory, the more kinds of things you can model, the less you can actually model your theory or your tools or your language, right? The less you can say about what kinds of things you could be saying. So at the sort of meta level, it becomes more difficult to describe the the language, the more powerful that language is. And it's just a simple intuition for this is like, 
the more things that something could potentially be, the less you can predict what it actually is. And I give a number of examples, both in the talk and also in a blog post I did about this. For example, like a simple example is, let's say you decided as a constraint every morning that you go to your, to your wardrobe and you always put on the same set of clothes, right? Let's say you just have like 100 different suits of the same kind. Now, every time you go to your wardrobe, it's very easy for you to predict what you're going to wear, right? Now, you've lost expressive power because you're not able to express your individuality or your values through what you're wearing, but you've gained certain other things like by having this constraint, which is like you always know what you're going to wear. You never have to spend any time on it. All of the components of your wardrobe are interchangeable and it's fault tolerant, right? Because, you know, if one thing is dirty, then you can just like put on the next one. It's the same thing with commodity components. If you decide that, you know, you're always going to use like a particular kind of Linux server with a certain set of hardware specifications, you lose a certain amount of freedom in composing your systems, but you gain another superpower, which is that you can reason about your systems. You know, you can, you can reason about your system architecture much more readily. And another example I give is with security. If you decide like, oh, I'm going to be root, right? And I'm going to just like do whatever I want. And in fact, every, all the users of my system are going to be root and they're going to be able to do whatever they want. And every program is going to run as root. Now that gives you a tremendous, tremendous amount of power and it, it's a, a very flexible system, but it becomes a system that is really difficult to reason about. And it's very difficult to reason about how components and users are going to behave and what they're going to be able to do because they could be doing anything, right? And so if you constrain users and programs to a certain set of permissions, then you gain the ability to compose those things into larger components, like users and programs and like group them together because you can now, now reason about them as a group because you can take like the sum of their permissions and that, that those are like all the permissions they require. And so it's easier to like deploy a component in a larger environment if if it has smaller requirements for for like permissions. If it, like if something doesn't need to run as root, it's easier to deploy it somewhere where it doesn't need a lot of permissions. And that all makes sense. And I just wanted to kind of make sure we covered that a little bit for anybody to get a high level overview of that talk so they could go out and track it down and get some more details about it. So Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I have like a really good high level overview of it, like other than the talk. But it's kind of a topic that's really difficult to talk about because, you know, you're like talking about language. But I think, again, it gave a good idea of some of the real world examples and how they apply. That's a good enough tease that they can go out and find some more about it. So the last question, just because you're close on time, is if someone's interested in getting into functional programming, either generally or Scala specifically, do you, and you, because you got and have presented at a number of different conferences, are there any conferences that you think that would be a good one for someone who's coming in and just checking out and getting their feet ramped? Because some conferences can range from we do super deep dives on these topics to more beginner friendly. Is there any recommendations for events or conferences or whatever for someone who's interested in finding out more? I don't know. Honestly, I think largely like 
the conference tracks uh, is a complete sham. There are a lot of conferences out there, right? And they charge you, you know, a lot of money to come and like hear, listen to people talk. But a lot of the stuff that you can you can hear at these talks and and that kind of stuff is like totally, you know, it's it's available online and like all the talks are available later that you can listen to, etc. Like the most valuable thing that you get out of like going to conferences is like talking to people in the hallways and working with people like through a problem or something. And you can get that like without necessarily going to like an extensive conference. There are lots of like community conferences, at least in the in the US, and I know there are a lot of them in, in Europe. In Europe, there's Flat Map Oslo for Scala. In the US, there's you know Northeast Scala, there's Northwest Scala, there's Scala up north in Canada. So there are lots of like community conferences, and I think that those are really the most awesome conferences generally. Like not the like the big ticket ones, but like you know the really small community organized ones because they tend to be sort of like intimate and easygoing and you like get to talk to people in the hallways and things like that and also just like go to your local meetup you know if there's like a functional programming meetup you know go to it speak at it right even if you like don't know what you're talking about learn something and then talk about it talk about what you've learned right yeah i think that's that's the advice i have about that so with all that being said, is there any conferences you're going to be going to soon or any other appearances that you're going to be have that people can find you at or what's up on your radar in the next number of months? Uh, so I've done most of the conferences I'm going to do this year. I think I'm going to do Scala Up North in Montreal at the beginning of August. And I think that's the only thing that I have on my calendar for now. And then do you have any call to action for listeners that you want them to take away after listening to this episode? Oh, sorry. I actually have, I have totally have an announcement that I want to, to make about conferences. So I'm actually on the program committee for CUFP, which is the Commercial Users of Functional Programming. And that is co-located with ICFP, the International Conference on Functional Programming. And it will be in Nara, Japan in September. And I want to encourage people to submit talks to that. CUFP is about, so commercial use of functional programming. It's about people's experiences and expectations with functional programming sort of in the enterprise and like in the commercial setting. Whereas ICFP is largely sort of an academic conference, which is it's co-educated with. But yeah, I definitely want to encourage people to, to submit to that. And it's every year. Right, and it's in a different city in the world every year. I definitely want to encourage people to go to that and submit talks to that, and like talk about their experiences or their concerns or whatever with uh, with functional programming in a commercial setting. I'll make sure to get links to that as well, and put some of the links to the call for proposals in the show notes as well for people. Awesome. Yeah, and that ICFP and CFP are are awesome conferences in general. They have like really high caliber talks and and just people like hanging out you know there will be you know the inventors of haskell will be just like hanging out and yeah just lots of lots of cool people that make all kinds of cool stuff so where can people find you online if they want to find out more and follow you and keep up with what's going on and anything that you're sharing online uh well i'm runar o rama both at twitter and on github and my blog is blog.hire-order.com. If you go to the blog, blog.hire-order.com, that's where you'll find information about my stuff. 
And I'll get those all in the show notes as well. Okay. So thank you, Renar, for taking your time to join me. I got your name through a couple of different means and a couple of them all coalesced at the same time. So thanks for offering to be a guest and giving some perspective of the background of functional programming and a little bit more of background about Scala because I don't necessarily get to work in Scala and don't do much with the JVM in my day job. And there's so many programming languages out there and functional programming languages as well that it's just hard to keep a pulse on everything. So thanks for just giving me a pulse on some of what's going on in Scala and finding out a little bit more about you. So thank you very much for taking your time and joining me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. As always, a giant thank you to David Belger for the logo. And until next week, this has been Functional Geekery.